Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo. Today, we are so honored to have with us a dear friend, Rear Admiral Michael McDevitt, who retired from the United States Navy in 1997. During his prolific career in the Navy, Admiral McDevitt served 34 years on active duty, spending a large portion of his time in the Asia-Pacific region. After retiring from the Navy, Admiral McDevitt joined the Center for Naval Analysis, where he was the first center's vice president before becoming a senior fellow. I've known Mike for decades. Uh, He is uh, perhaps the preeminent scholar and analyst on how to think about naval competition uh, and other matters, innovation and technology in the Asia-Pacific region. He's an expert on Japan, on South Korea, but most principally, he is known for his strategic thinking when it comes to the relationship between the United States and China. That's great, Kurt. Thanks. You you said it perfectly. Admiral, thanks so much for for being here. I want to Start with your distinguished naval career, Mm -hmm. and maybe you could tell the listeners about how you entered the Navy, when you entered the Navy, and what was happening in U.S. geopolitics at the time. Well, fine. Thank you both. I'm very happy to be here, and thank you very much for that overly generous introduction. Mm I was commissioned in 1963 through the uh, Naval Reserve Officer Training uh, Program, NROTC, from the University of Southern California. They paid my tuition at USC, and I owed them four years. And I stayed for 34. Uh, And I was uh, went into it as a surface officer. I was, and so my first eight years in the Navy were on a succession of four different ships. An ocean-going minesweeper as a brand new ensign, and then a couple of destroyers. And then the Navy was kind enough to, as a young lieutenant, give me command of my own minesweeper home ported in Japan. During that period of time, the Vietnam War was going on. Right. In fact, my my first deployment was uh, we got to uh, the Western Pacific uh, just in time for the Tonkin Gulf incident. Wow! And uh, spent time hanging around Da Nang, et cetera, et cetera. So when I talk now about the South China Sea to students or other thing, I say, I probably spent more time in the South China Sea than the PLA Navy. But wow. Those, <laughs> these, are real, these are real life experiences. And I just wonder, as you think back to those sets of uh, experiences in your service during that time, mm-hmm. how does it shape your view of U.S. power, of the U.S. Navy? Uh, we're going to get to some specifics, but but you've seen this from a very different lens. And I just wonder how that shaped your vision. Well, today. I think the biggest lens is uh, when I joined, there were over a thousand ships in the U.S. Navy now. Now, most of those were still World War II. Uh, and so we had, we had far and away one of the worlds. I'm not sure how that we compared with the Soviets at the time. Largest navies. Mm. Uh, I remember operating in the Gulf of Tonkin during around what they called Yankee Station, where the air, aircraft carriers were flying bombing sorties into North Vietnam. There were four carriers out there on, uh, that were com- constantly on station. And so that meant, you know, there'd be four more coming. So we had enough aircraft carriers to do serious sorts of things like that in terms of a comprehensive uh, power. 
that that has changed dramatically, not surprisingly, mm-hmm. uh, but in terms of numbers and and uh, the amount of, uh, if you will, air power you can bring to the fight that we used to be able to do. Mm-hmm. But for you. Um We've talked about, and Kurt's written a lot about, preserving the liberal order, Mm -hmm. the post-World War II architecture, of which the U.S. has been such a big part of. This this was not an academic exercise for you. You were were an operator out there doing it. And the reason I raise it is because of what's happening today in the country, which is we seem to forget about the positive role that we have played and we hopefully will continue to play in places like the Pacific and the role specifically that the Navy has played. Mm -hmm. There's a big segment of the country that wants to either turn our back on that or pretend like we did not play that role. Well, there's no question that we felt that while we prepared as the time went on during Vietnam and where we, we prepared as you get ready to deploy to the Western Pacific, we prepared to fight the Soviets. All of our training back in San Diego and getting ready to go and what have you was all focused on containment, which was had broad consensus within the country at that time. Now, Vietnam broke down the consensus about fighting in Vietnam, but right. it didn't, I don't think, overly harm the consensus that containment was a sensible strategy, a sensible policy. And we thought we were uh, you know, on the right side of God, if you will, uh, in terms of uh, uh, pr- providing uh, the, the standard trope now is uh, you know, provide security and and uh, free good uh, for sea lane protection sure. and all of those sorts of things at the time. Never thought twice about it. Hmm. So, 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 Mike, I first got to know you when I was in the Pentagon. You right. won't remember this. There was a uh, so I had been working at the White House. I was not an Asian specialist, and we were in a meeting together. And someone said, "You know, who's going to be that new? Who's the new guy at the Pentagon um, that's going to take over the Asia thing?" And someone said, "I think it's going to be Kurt Campbell." And I'm sitting right next to you at the table. You didn't know who I was, no. and he goes, "Who the hell is that?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Admiral, it's me." But you know, went on, and you know, you always gave great advice. Incredibly good counselor. Very bipartisan. Um, you know, and, and, and a clear headed strategic thinker, I I have to ask you, so I do know that on at least a couple of occasions you were asked to serve in capacities in government and each time you chose not to, you, you have played a role as a strategic advisor and, uh, a commentator, but for whatever reason you chose not uh, under Democrats and Republicans to serve at senior levels. I don't want to put you on the spot, but most people in Washington live for those moments, but you chose not to. Why not? Well, the first time I was asked, I was still on active duty, and it was uh, that would have meant I was asked if I wanted a job uh, working for Rumsfeld. Uh, and frankly, uh, I was not really all that interested in the job I just decided that uh, working for Dom Rumsfeld, from what I, I he'd been in office for two years then, and I it didn't seem to me to be the thing I wanted to wanted to do. And whether that would have changed the trajectory of things, who knows? Um, then the second time, I think it was you who threw my hat in the ring for when the Assistant Secretary of Defense came up. At that stage of the game, I was 
fully engaged at CNA, and I was establishing a new division, uh, Center for Strategic Studies, and we were doing a lot of Asia work and what have you. And I wasn't sure that I wanted to uh, jump back into the fight because yeah. I was enjoying very much what I was doing right then. It was more, I think, more of a selfish uh, than uh, any reluctance to serve. I would, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to keep doing what I was doing and enjoying it, as opposed to. Uh, and I would have loved to have been the second assistant secretary of defense in almost any other circumstance. Yeah. So, Mike, so now, you know, some are arguing that we're really on the cusp of a new mm -hmm. era. Uh, we've had almost 20 years of unrelenting challenges in the Middle East. Our focus is shifting more to the Indo-Pacific. Mm -hmm. uh, arguably, this is the Navy's time. This is what essentially, strategically, uh, they're aiming for in terms of where the focus mm -hmm. of both resources and strategic thinking will go. As you look at it from your standpoint of, you know, decades of experience, how do you see the relationship between the United States and China playing out? Has the upsurge in tension surprised you? Uh, and, you know, how in particular has an institution like the Navy responded to the idea that we're now involved in a, you know, kind of headlong strategic competition that will define our future. Yeah. Well, there's a lot wrapped up in yeah. that question. There's, I, I realize that when I, this is what you're never supposed to do, ask nine questions, but choose choose any one of those and, and focus on it. Well, I think the the biggest thing is clearly the Asia Pacific is a is a maritime and air theater. You know, that's not a that's a blinding flash of the obvious. So but the thing that is so different now is for the very first time, even during the Cold War, when we worried about the Soviet Pacific fleet. Now, for the very first time, uh, if, if something goes to hell and we actually wind up in a shooting contest with, with China, the U.S. Navy is going to have to fight to gain sea control, and then it's going to have to fight to maintain sea control. That's very different from my entire experience where we, we assume... Yeah, fascinating. That, yeah. We had sea control. We could go anywhere we damn well please, that, what that means effectively, and not pay much attention. Obviously, the Soviet Union was a, in a, a war with the Soviets. That would have been quite a different matter. But, but in terms of the way we operated then, now, now the balance of power, in, uh, naval power, uh, for the U.S. 7th Fleet, I, could, I call them the first responders mm -hmm. because they're the ones who are hanging around the first island chain, the Ryukus and along Japan and what have you. Well, I did a little thumbnail count just the other day. On any given day, the PLA Navy has uh, 270 ships and submarines uh, that can shoot a missile at you or a torpedo at you. I'm, and I'm I'm not counting any of the shore-based uh, missiles or the shore-based aircraft. I'm just talking about the, the Chinese Navy. On any given day, the 7th Fleet has maybe 20 ships that can do that. So on a firepower, day, on, day in and day out firepower situation, we're way overmatched. Can I ask a, a basic question about that? Is that because the Chinese have produced and develop their way into that capability, and we have not moved fast enough 
or is it just we're so spread out across the globe? How would you describe what's going on? It's a combination of what you just asked. First of all, they're the home team and we're the away team. And that's a huge advantage when you actually have military capability. You know, our... We're bringing stuff across the Pacific Ocean, so and we can't we can't dump the entire Pacific fleet into bases in the Western Pacific. So, you're by definition you're limited to what kind of naval power you can have there on a day in and day out basis. Either what you have that's permanently assigned versus what you can get on a rotational basis. Mm. And then the other part of it is you've still got you've still got requirements in the Mediterranean. You've still got um, requirements in the Gulf of uh, the Arabian Gulf and the Persian Gulf. And so those those things uh, plus the Navy's gotten smaller. It's roughly holding its own right now. Uh, but, uh, and another thing, the Navy's rested on its oars with regard to things like anti-ship cruise missiles for years. You know, the argument was, who are we going to shoot them at? There, nobody, we're not going to get into a fight that with anybody that had very many ships to worry about. Well, wrong, as it turned out. <laughs> right. Uh, so I, I like that rested on its oars. I like that. <laughs> had to throw that one. Yeah, in. that's good. So, but that's, that's what it comes down to is uh, China's capability has increased. Now, remembering, because they're in home waters, that means a lot of little stuff that they wouldn't dare send halfway around the world uh, is very effective in the East China Sea or the northern part of the South China Sea or now with the new Spratly bases. Those give them a forward base if you're starting from, mm-hmm. from uh, Qingdao, for example, in which to home port smaller ships there. So you have a, they have a presence there that they can maintain and sustain. So this is a matter of great concern for you, it sounds like. Well, it's what I'm working on now, among other things. It's, it's a concern to me in the sense that the relative military balance of power in the Western Pacific or the East Asia has changed dramatically. And it, it's unlikely it's going to change back. But can I ask you on that, Mike? Look, I love the way you described it for our listeners. Very clear cut, mm-hmm. very concise. What I find interesting is, you know, you know, Rich and I talk to a lot of people. I, I find the perspectives, you know, you can talk to a large group of people who still talk about China like it was a country in the 1980s. We're engaging them. We're we're helping them to arrive on the global scene where, in fact, you know, I think many would argue that that process is already complete and, you know, kind of ongoing, that that they are an arrived power with enormous capability. Um, I, I often wonder how psychologically it works with, an, with our Navy in particular, because I think the dominant view still in our in our big institutions like the Pentagon is that the United States is the leading power, is the global hegemon. But my sense is if you talk to the operators who are out there, you know, on the cutting edge, that they have a very different perception and that they view that American primacy is ebbing, if not having ebbed, and that we're at great risk. And so like when people ask, what's the greatest risk in the Asia Pacific region? I actually think it could be the response of a naval aviator or captain feeling under siege in a tactical moment and responding, feeling that, you know, our situation was at a, you know, animated by a strategic view that, that we're facing um, enormous challenges. How do you, how do you respond to that? Well, one year, I think you're correct. Uh, my sample size, which is not enormous, but talking to 
former group commanders and uh, destroyer COs and what have you, they know it's pretty obvious to them because everywhere they sail, they have a Chinese shadow. Uh, be it the South China Sea, East China Sea, there's the PLA Navy there. Uh, normally, 99% of the cases, from what I understand, are very professional interactions and uh, what have you, nothing particularly dangerous about them, but it goes on. Uh, regarding, regarding a panicked a naval officer pulling, I, if you're suggesting, you know, start shooting, uh, I'm not so worried about that. Um, uh, certainly not in a ship, uh, a ship basis where a commanding officer's not going to start uh, plinking a cruise missile at a Chinese destroyer. I, I'm not, I'm not saying that, Mike, but I, like I've been told, like like there have been some collision, mm -hmm. you know, and, and not the last collision, minute, but clear, uh, no clear. clear cut, and and but at the last minute, the U.S. commander appropriately, at least in those circumstances, it was described, pulled away, right. I can imagine a situation, a stare down or something like that, where where it would not be a direct, I'm going to fire a mm. missile, but I'm I'm not going to back down. And then the next thing you know, you've got a collision and then the response, you know, kind of follow on stuff. That's more what I'm talking yeah. about, sort of a, a sense of psychological, I've got to stand up. I can't divert here, right? Yeah. Well, I've may, I may have a jaundiced view of that because as a... As a junior officer and a CEO of a destroyer, I got to play a little bit of bumper tag with the Russians. But uh, mm -hmm. uh, we didn't bend any metal. But I mean, it was one of those <laughs> things that was interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, but holding your holding your position, if if the COs are well versed in in the rules of the road, uh, if you're the privileged ship. That means you have to maintain course and speed. So if so, so the rules of the road say you maintain course and speed, and the other guy is supposed to maneuver to avoid you. But if he doesn't, and at the last minute, in extremis, that's where the term comes from, you can maneuver to avoid collision. So the example, for example, of the Decatur and the and the Chinese DDG, what was happening? It was a, roughly akin to being overtaken on the on the highway you're in the right lane and a guy comes blow you blows by you on your driver's side and then pulls in front of you and slows down mm. and so on a highway you don't have the luxury of turning right and getting out of the way or you may you may not have the luxury of right. doing that on right. the, the the ship who had to maintain our, the u.s ship had to maintain course and speed once the chinese ship did that he just put on right rudder and got out of dodge but so there are procedures now, whether they will always work in time, whether, uh, uh, whether somebody misjudges and you, and you do bend metal. But I would guess, for example, on these freedom of navigation operations, um, that the ship is at general quarters. Uh, it's, not, it's not obvious topside, but all, you're all buttoned up. All your watertight doors and hatches are closed. The crews at damage control stations. You've got men ready to, men and women now, ready to fight damage, uh, deal with damage and what have you. And so I would guess that the Chinese is equally as buttoned up. So it's not like you're going to have a, like those two collisions the Navy had where birthing compartments flooded and killed a lot of sailors. Uh, that nobody's going to be sleeping during that period right, of time. So. Right.
just stay on this capabilities question for a moment mm -hmm. because it's uh, it is alarming. Um, as you look out into the future, five years and and ten years, if if we continue at the pace we're on, both the U.S kind of size of our Navy and our expected procurement and production and the Chinese rates, does this gap get much worse in your estimation? Well, that's, that's the million dollar question. And one reason it's a million dollar question is the Chinese won't tell us that mm -hmm. it's a state secret how big their Navy is going to be. Mm -hmm. So every other Navy in the world, when you go to Congress or the Diet or whoever it happens to be at Parliament, uh, you have to tell them, how many ships you want, how much you're going to cost, right. et cetera, et cetera. It, we don't know. So the answer is, uh, we don't know how big the Chinese Navy is going to become. On that, I, Rich, I first worked with uh, Admiral McDevitt closely right after the Taiwan Straits crisis back in 1994, 1995. And we commissioned Mike and a team to do, um, the admiral to do an analysis about where the Chinese military was going. And we did three scenarios, a modest growth over the course of 20 years, medium growth, and then an extreme growth. And I had a chance, so it was a classified report, you know, mm -hmm. so, but I had a chance, it was declassified. I had a chance to see the conclusions of it. It's been now 20 years and it was last year. And, and we looked at it and everything that China has done has so far exceeded the third course. Wow. Uh, you know, there. I, uh, I think one of the things, one of the thing, the you know, kind of the after action assessments, was that there are more um, classes of ships, Chinese ships, yeah. in the Pacific than there are total number of American ships. Wow. That the amount of naval and air investment, and frankly downsizing of the army. So what, they, what they've done yeah. is basically rechanneled resources. They've created an enormous Navy and Air Force, mm -hmm. and they have downsized the traditional role that the army played um, uh, over decades inside the bureaucracy and also kind of preparing itself for land challenges from friendly countries like India. Well, <laughs> I was going to ask about India because this is the right <laughs> opportunity to do that. Well, not only India, but I'm you know, again, uh, for a lot of Americans, they would say, we've given, we've served, we've spent a lot of time and money and blood and treasure in that part of the world. This is now a job for Australia, Japan, India, uh, others in the region, Southeast Asian powers, East Asian powers. And it's okay if we start to dial back our, uh, our footprint a bit. I don't, what, what do you say to that? Well, if we have to dial back the footprint, it ought to be because uh, we don't have enough resources or capability to maintain a presence. It should not be because I'm tired of this. I don't want to do this anymore. Let the other guys do it. Uh, it should be because of our own internal decisions that the, you know, the size of the Navy is determined by the Congress of the United States, essentially the American people. Uh, and so if, if the U.S. government, if the American people want to have a small navy, we're going to have a small navy, no matter how many people pound their hand on the table. And so uh, the question is, uh, whatever the navy we have, uh, as long as it's capable to maintain 
uh, our connections with our allies overseas and what have you, we ought to be doing that. We ought not to just pull the plug in the hopes that they're going to pick up the slack. Because we have, as Kurt knows well, we have convening power, and the Navy has convening power. And by that, I mean, if the U.S. Navy is going to have an exercise, for example, so-and-so, it is a heck of a lot easier for other countries around the region to want to fall in with on us as opposed to somewhere else. Right. And Kurt, uh, maybe a question for you and for the Admiral, but I mean, this gets back to the importance of our partnerships, our mm-hmm. treaty commitments mm-hmm. in Asia, and that we can't really do this alone. And, and politically, we probably shouldn't do this yeah. alone. Yeah. And, and that gets back to this battle over uh, really hearts and minds in, in different yeah. corners of, of the Asia Pacific. I mean, it's an interesting thing. Like, you know, uh, the Admiral's talking about this era in which, you know, he grew up and he cut his teeth in the Navy in which the foundational aspects of what we believe in were unquestioned, right? But, mm-hmm. you know, we're in a period right now where some of the big issues, you know, America's role in the world, what kind of defense commitment that the Admiral, you know, are we prepared to make? And, you know, do our allies take advantage of us? Do we need to rethink those? Now, my sense is that I don't believe that the Republican Party and President Trump's supporters support him because he's questioning our alliances and our role in Asia. And that's my view. I think that's part of the package. And if that's the part that you've got to accept, if you're going to get called out and supported in terms of, you know, kind of the dignity of work and, you know, whatever it is uh, uh, that attracts your particular community in the Midwest or elsewhere, the South, that that's one thing. But I, I think that there is more bipartisan and, you know, a larger commitment to America working with allies and an American role that goes beyond simply you know, supporting the nation state. But the truth is, we're we're, going to test that. I was about to say, that's that's kind of up in the air right now. Yeah, Yeah. I hope you're right. But I don't, I think the big, to me, one of the indicators is, at least in Asia, I don't see too many people walking away. The Philippines, you could argue, is uh, potentially a, a case in point. At least Duterte has made much of it publicly. Uh, but by the same token, the treaty is still the defense treaty is still in place, and and he's still got that in his back pocket. Uh, and so far, his bromance with uh, with hmm. Xi Jinping has not yielded very much in terms of practical loans and what have you. So, so other than that, uh, the Japanese are certainly not. Because if nothing else, the Japanese are over a bit of a barrel. Where do they right. go? So the hardest thing in Asia is the is the, are the big questions. Mm-hmm. That's and we're talking about America's role in the world. So you've been following China now for decades. I'm going to ask you just a direct question: Can China be content as a great power in companion with the United States, or are they destined and determined? to become the leading state, the dominant st- state in Asia and indeed the world, and that they believe that in many respects the relationship with the United States is zero-sum. Where, where do you come down on that fundamental question? Well, the way you characterize Chinese ambitions I think is about right in terms of 
uh, Xi Jinping's vision, I guess I should say, and uh, the China dream is, a, I think, an apt characterization. Now, whether they uh, will be able to coexist with us is what you're saying or, or remains to be seen. Um, uh, I think they will. I think they will have to. And the reason I think they will have to is our nuclear arsenal is going to make sure that war doesn't happen. I hate to say it, but nuclear weapons are probably going to keep the peace in Asia mm. because, no, the Chinese don't want to pick a fight, nor do we, with somebody who has the ability to uh, destroy the other person's country. And so um, when it comes down to it, uh, Chinese activities, I think, will be limited and not unlimited uh, in what they choose to do. Uh, and they'll be very cautious because uh, they don't want to e see escalation get out of hand. And so the nuclear weapons will, in fact, uh, put guardrails on where to keep the relationship, I believe, from going way off track. I just want to um, close with where we started, which was your naval career mm -hmm. and your 34 years and what you say to young people today who are thinking about a career in public service, specifically the military, maybe the Navy. How important was that to you? And, and um, are, are you hoping that more Americans actually uh, give something back to the country in, in some form of, of service like you did for the brunt of your career? Well, I certainly hope that more Americans give back something to the country. I think that's absolutely essential. Uh, truth in advertising here, uh, from the time I was a little kid reading naval history, I always thought I wanted to be a naval officer. <laughs> so uh, it turned out that I liked it and stayed. Um, uh, but in terms of encouraging young people, I was talking to my grandson, who's a computer whiz, and I said, "You ought to get into you get into cyber. Get in, join the join the military. Everybody's looking for cyber warriors." I, I, I seriously think that's one of the things we need to worry about. We have lots of, lots of young uh, uh, boys and girls who are really adept at that sort of thing, and more and more of them probably should sign up, or I would like them to sign up. Yeah. Great message. Great encouragement, Admiral, from you and, and Rich, a great question. Admiral McDevitt, thank you so much for joining us today. Really wonderful perspective, uh, great wisdom. It's been such a pleasure having you on Tea Leaves. Thank yes, you. Sir. sir, thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.